Sharon B. Smith began work in television while a graduate student at the University of Texas in Austin. She was a police beat reporter, covered the state legislature, and was a weekend anchor. Sharon then moved east, where she worked in news at television stations in New York and Connecticut as a legislative reporter. And after ESPN went on the air in Bristol, Connecticut, she moved into sports journalism. She appeared on and anchored Sports Center and eventually Down the Stretch, the first weekly horse racing program on cable television. She also anchored ESPN broadcasts of Kentucky Derby Day, Preakness Day, The Breeders' Crown, and The Hambletonian, which I had to look up before I gave this uh, talk. She is the author of several books on racing, horse care and training, and the Civil War, including retraining, teaching new skills to previously trained horses, the complete idiot's guide to betting on horses. <laughs> Why are you writing books if you know so much about betting on horses? Anyway, um, Connecticut Civil War, a guide for travelers, and most recently, the subject of today's lecture, Stonewall Jackson's Little Sorrel, an unlikely hero of the Civil War. So please join me in giving a warm DHS welcome to Sharon Smith. Yes, I did write a book on, on betting on horses, and my main advice is keep your money in your pocket, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> Apart from that, uh, you know, I do love horses, obviously, and I've been uh, interested in the Civil War for many, many years. So I wrote a book about a horse. You see it right there, uh, Stonewall Jackson's horse. Now, it's a challenge to write a book about a single horse because you know what? They tend to not write their memoirs, and they're, they're not particularly prolific letter writers. And in the case of Little Sorrel, during the, the two years of his ownership by, by his most famous owner, um, he was owned by a man who also didn't live to write his memoirs. Uh, I kind of doubt he would have if he had lived, and didn't write an awful lot of letters either. But because the two of them were so celebrated, there was a remarkable amount of information available about this horse, uh, and, and that's why it could be done. I'll tell you why I started on this story. A little, it's a little bit strange because I'm in Connecticut. Well, what could that possibly have to do with Stonewall Jackson or his horse? And this is what it was. This is one of the, all the 169 towns in the state of Connecticut have a state historical commission marker. The local town was permitted to choose the wording, and then the state uh, paid for the construction. This was done in the 70s and 80s. And when they went to the very tiny town of Summers, they, uh, the town chose these writings. And if you can see on it, in addition to the fact of a bonnet-making factory and the fact that there was a gristmill, is about halfway down the information that Stonewall Jackson's favorite war horse, Little Sorrel, was foaled in Summers, Connecticut. Now, I, same thing. I wrote a book just before the sesquicentennial about places in Connecticut connected to the Civil War, and yes, there are quite a few. Came across this sign and said, you know, I'm not going to include it. That seems preposterous. After, uh, it, when I was thinking about uh, revising that book, updating it, um, I went back to the story and thought, you know, could this possibly be true? And I'll tell you a little bit about the history of trying to find out if, indeed, Little Sorrel was, uh, was foaled in Connecticut. Now, Summers is a tiny, tiny town in a very small state uh, that's been bypassed by all the, the um, interstate highways. And it's a long drive to get there, well, depending on the fact that 
no place in Connecticut is that long to get to. But Summers is up there on the Massachusetts border, which makes it, of course, even more unlikely that, uh, that uh, a Confederate war horse could have been born there. Um, Summers is a beautiful little town, still largely rural. Uh, it's probably best known now as the site of the state's uh, only full maximum security prison. It's supermax, and you know when you live in the other part of the state like I do, you don't want to stay to your neighbor. I was up visiting a friend in Summers yesterday, because <laughs> they'll, they'll certainly wonder about the company you keep, although I was up visiting friends in Summers at various points doing this book, uh, but for a better reason than that. Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson, one of the most famous and uh, most accomplished generals of the Civil War any time in American military history, um, he had a reputation as being, and was indeed, um, eccentric is the most polite word. Peculiar might have been another. Uh, he was not known for his appearance. He didn't care what kind of uniform he wore. It turned out didn't care what kind of horse he rode. Uh, but he was a military genius. And he, in choosing Little Sorrel, picked a very similar kind of horse, uh, a little peculiar in some of his behavior, was not impressive to look at, but was a kind of military genius as a war horse. It's Stonewall Jackson aboard Little Sorrel. If you haven't seen, to the, seen the upgraded um, murals, uh, the restored murals downstairs, uh, or upstairs actually rather, in the um, military mural room, this is Stonewall Jackson aboard Little Sorrel. Charles Hofbauer actually spoke to some of the people that had seen Jackson aboard Little Sorrel, uh, saw the, the mount, the taxidermy mount of Little Sorrel, which was next door for many years, um, never saw the horse in person. We, don't, we do not have a photograph, a known photograph, of uh, uh, Thomas Jackson aboard Little Sorrel. Uh, so we have the artist renderings. I think this is probably the best of the older, before the, the current generation of Civil War artists, the best rendition of Little Sorrel, who was small, known to be alert during battle, uh, sleepy the rest of the time. Jackson, as we will get into, is probably not sitting in the saddle like he really would have during the war. There's a lot of descriptions of him um, as a horseman, generally concluding that he rode with his stirrups uh, way too short and rode forward in the saddle, a, a, a method of riding that we would not find unusual today, but certainly was then. So where did he get that method of riding? This is Jackson's Mill in western West Virginia, uh, then Virginia, of course. This is pre-war. Uh, Jackson was not born there. He was born in Clarksburg, but he uh, grew up as a, a young man and a teenager in Jackson's Mill, where his uh, uncle maintained a race course, interestingly enough. You look on the left side of the picture over the river, uh, Cummins Jackson, Thomas Jackson's uh, uncle, maintained a race, maintained a race course, and uh, Thomas Jackson, as a boy, rode racehorses. Okay, so that's where he got the uh, forward seat in the short stirrups. Well, actually, at that era, in the 1830s and 40s, jockeys rode with long stirrups, and they leaned forward a bit, but not very much. So he got the way of riding somewhere else. Now, West Point in the uh, 1840s, there's a nice uh, drawing of riders there, and you see a, an upright rider with very long stirrups. Uh, so Thomas Jackson did not get his riding style there. I believe he actually got it in Mexico. Uh, he did participate in the Mexican War. On the left, these, these are two very early styles of riding that developed for military uh, use during the 15th, 16th, and early 17th centuries in Europe. On the left is a style called La Hineta. On the right is a style called La Brida. This is from an Italian book. However, the styles of riding developed in Spain. Uh, you can see on the right, this is the style that the, um, that the knights of, of, of shining armor used to ride. 
very long stirrups leaning back in the saddle. On the left is the Lajineta style with a much shorter stirrups. Now this particular rider isn't leaning particularly far forward, but you can see he's much more than, than the one on the right. Uh, the one on the left, the Lajineta style, is the style that the conquistadors primarily brought to Mexico. The style uh, was still in use uh, in the 1840s when Jackson was in, uh, on duty in Mexico City right after the Mexican War. We know he bought an expensive horse there. He wrote about uh, riding down the Paseo with the aristocrats of Mexico City. They would have ridden like this on the left, and I, I believe that's where Jackson got his riding style. This is what, what should have been, uh, what a military officer of that era should have ridden like. This happens to Rufus Ingalls, who was a, a federal quartermaster, but that's sort of a classic military seat of the 1860s. Back in the saddle, long stirrups, the, the toes aren't uh, pointed up like they would be today. That's not what uh, Thomas Jackson looked like when he rode a horse when he went to war. He may have looked like this. Now, I picked this picture because I looked everywhere to find a picture of a military officer in uniform riding in what's called a modern forward seat, short stirrups, uh, leaning forward. This happens to be an Italian equestrian who was a cavalry officer of the Italian army in the 1960s. Now, he, Jackson, although uh, some of his observers described him riding so close to the horse's mane that they thought if the horse uh, threw up his head, he'd break his nose, very short stirrups. Stonewall Jackson probably rode pretty much like this, like Raimundo Denzeo, a great equestrian Olympian of the 1960s. So we'll skip forward to Jackson with his peculiar riding style, arriving at Harper's Ferry in uh, the beginning of May of 1861 as a major of uh, Virginia volunteers, not yet Confederates, Virginia volunteers, just after the legislature voted secession. Jackson was sent up to try to, coming out of VMI, he still, although he had retired from the regular army, he still had a military background. He was given uh, the duty to man the garrison, the Virginia garrison, not Confederate, at Harper's Ferry, which was a critical place. You know, the canal there, the B&O Railroad coming through, turned out to be impossible to defend. So it, it didn't last long. But he was there, and he needed horses. He needed, he was an artillery man. He needed primarily artillery horses, but he needed a horse or two for himself. This is the man, John A. Harmon of, uh, of Stanton, Virginia, who was he made his quartermaster, who was tasked with finding horses for the Virginia garrison at Harper's Ferry. He went out into Loudoun County, rounded up some heavy-duty draft horses for artillery, some wagon horses, but he apparently was not able to find out in the countryside uh, suitable riding horses for, for, for Major and then Colonel Thomas Jackson. So he, in, on May 10th, 1861, the um, Virginia militia troops stopped a B&O train, a Baltimore and Ohio Railroad train that had begun in the Ohio River Valley in southern Ohio, was headed for Baltimore. It was not a federal uh, train. It was an a entrepreneur, a livestock person, had put these uh, animals on a train, a train of, uh, a car rather of horses and several trains or several cars on this train of uh, beef. So John Harmon stopped, was called after the train had been stopped and looked at the horses and found two for his uh, commander, Thomas Jackson. And this, this is an 1863 picture, two years later, but this is the only wartime picture of, of the horse that, uh, that Thomas Jackson kept to go to war. This is the little sorrel of two sorrels, meaning chestnut, that were taken off the train 
this is the little one, uh, about 15 hands, which is small. A hand is four inches measured at the uh, top of the shoulder, uh, and 15 hands is quite small for a man of nearly six feet, which is what Jackson was. Um, people that looked at him thought he was a very odd choice of a horse. And throughout the war, or throughout his war, which was two years like Jackson's, he was uh, considered to be um, not a suitable mount for, a, for a, an officer, especially a general. He was too short. The color was fine, but there were confirmation characteristics of him that, that they basically felt like Jackson's seat in the saddle, peculiar. Uh, his head was too big. Uh, the, the pasterns, which are the ankles, are a little small and upright. Now, any horse can have that problem. There were a couple of characteristics that, they, that were felt by alleged horse experts were wrong. If you look at the, look where the tail is and go up from the tail to the top of the hip, that's called the croup, in Little Sorrel, the Little Sorrel, that was not his name at the time, it was very sloping, which is not something that, that uh, would be desirable in a horse. Also, the withers, the top of the shoulder, is quite a bit higher than the top of the, the hip. Also, not suitable for a riding horse uh, for a Virginia gentleman or Virginia officer in 1861. Um, in reality, there was absolutely nothing wrong with his confirmation, except for the fact, allowing for the fact that he was not what a Virginia gentleman would have been looking at. This was not a horse that would trot, and you can tell it right away from his confirmation. This was a horse whose intermediate gait between a walk and a run was a pace. Uh, and a pace is, here's a look at a, a pacing horses from the mid um, 19th century, and you can see in, in the case of a pacing horse, the legs on either side of the body go forward and backward at the same time. Now, this is not the normal gait of a quadruped of a four-legged animal. Um, every four-legged animal, almost every four-legged animal you could think of does the opposite. The right leg and the uh, left foreleg, right hind leg and the left foreleg will, will go forward at the same time. This is a side uh, lateral gait, and, and it's not, you look at the next time your dog trots across the room. This is not what a quadruped does, with the exception of camels and a couple of very few other breeds and some breeds of horses. Here's another look at a modern one. They, there are gated horses that do a pacing-like gait, but the, the primary pacer today is a, a standard bred racehorse. And you can see the legs on the one side of the body go back and forward at the same time. It's actually a faster gait than the trot. It can be very comfortable to ride, but it's not what was common in Virginia in the mid-19th century. A lot of people think that what he took off the uh, train, what John Harmon picked off the train, was a Morgan. And this is uh, the original Morgan, Justin Morgan. This was drawn in about 1857-58, which was uh, you know, just before the, the incidents of the odd-looking little pacing horse coming off the train. And you can see that this is a completely different kind of animal. Uh, Justin Morgan, the horse, was dead 30-some years at this point, but it was drawn by somebody who had contact with, if not the original Morgan, certainly the first or second generation afterwards. Here's a good look at a real Morgan on the right, Rienzi, uh, which was uh, Philip Sheridan's favorite horse, also known as, uh, as uh, Winchester, and Little Sorrel on the left. And you can see the confirmation is quite different. Rienzi has a flat croup. You can't really tell, because I couldn't find one without a saddle, but in reality, his, his withers were a little bit lower than the top of his hip. The other thing about Little Sorrel, that he had an unusually long forearm, which is the uh, part of the leg b between the, the chest and the knee, um, and that is also typical of a pacer. So I think what we have here is a pretty good example 
of a horse that is not a Morgan, but is something else. So what indeed was Little Sorrel? Now here we go back to an Anglican cleric of the early 18th century, 1721. This man, James McSparren, a Scots-Irish cleric, was sent to Rhode Island from England, actually, because he had moved to England at that point. The reason he's fitting into this is because he wrote the best description of a now-extinct breed called the Narragansett Pacer, uh, which developed in southern Rhode Island. And this is a, a, a map of the a state of Rhode Island, map of the counties of, uh, of Rhode Island. And you can see that the, the yellow at the bottom is the land of the Narragansett Pacer. And the Narragansetts were Indians of, of the era. The Pacer had nothing to do with them. It was developed independently and was, according to James McSparren, a very small chestnut pacing horse with a big head, uh, with high withers, with tremendous endurance. He, he described him as being able to, um, to work all day in the field and then pace a very rapid couple of miles to church in the evening if he wanted to. He was a great admirer of this breed. It had, had become extinct even by the time, uh, pretty much by the time Little Sorrel was born. But I do believe that Little Sorrel was either 100% or mostly Narragansett Pacer. And you know what? That story fits in just fine with, uh, with the horse having been foaled in Little Summers, Connecticut. This is the town in 1836, probably looked pretty much like this in 1850 when it was believed that the horse that Jackson took off the train uh, was foaled. Uh, the site where he supposedly was foaled is up to the left, the road that goes off to the left, uh, and about it's about a, maybe a half mile down that road where a man named uh, Noah Collins supposedly bred Little Sorrel. So when I went to try to get the story uh, about where the story came from, that Noah Collins in 1850 bred this little horse that was mostly Narragansett Pacer, fits in perfectly with the location. That was the site of the last known uh, stallions of the Narragansett Pacer breed standing in, in the east or anywhere, really. Uh, so I asked some people, the historical society, and the general answer was, well, everybody knows it's true. You know, not, not, not quite enough. Uh, finally, a, a wonderful woman uh, who's the historian for the, uh, the Congregational Church, the very old Congregational Church of Summers, came up with a typescript that is in their archives in the basement of the church, dated probably the early part of the 20th century, written by a man who was actually describing who lived in the houses in Summers, included the story of how Noah Collins had bred Stonewall Jackson's horse, with a few more details, for example, that the horse's name was American Traveler. You know, I'm not to so sure that's true, because we do. I was able to find that uh, Noah Collins owned a horse named American Traveler, but it didn't fit the, uh, the description, really, of... Jackson's little, you know, pacing chestnut horse could have been the sire, or they reused names a lot. But a little bit of information, his original name may have been American Traveler. I, I can't guarantee it. In fact, I can't guarantee any of the story, except that here's what I found out. The typescript written about, you know, the early decade, probably, of the 20th century, was written by a man who had bought a house across from Noah Collins at the time that uh, Little Sorrel was supposedly foaled. The man uh, was actually not just a near neighbor, but a, a, a close relative of Collins. And he is the origin of the story, you know, in the mid-19th century. The story was out while the principals were alive, while Noah Collins was alive, while his wife was alive, uh, while, while his children were alive. So that is, you know, it's pretty good evidence, but not proof. So I, I've come to, to think 
that perhaps it was true. And here's some of the things that make it seem to be true. This man is William Collins. Uh, he's the brother of Noah Collins in the 18, about 1850, moved to southern Ohio. We've heard that before, where the horse came from. Uh, and uh, he's in his uh, Union uh, Army uniform. I thought, well, this is it. You know, William Collins must have seen Little Sorrel, wrote back to his brother or visited his brother and said, guess who's Stonewall Jackson's writing? He never never came near Stonewall Jackson. Um, in fact, he went west even during the war, and Fort Collins, Colorado is named for him as a little bit of history. But he had a very good friend named William Trimble who was involved in the Shenandoah Valley campaign, who um, actually was at Harper's Ferry in September of 1862 when Jackson... Uh, Jackson's uh, army took Harper's Ferry and, in fact, came face-to-face to face with Stonewall Jackson on his horse, asking, actually, that his black servants not be, not be confiscated by the, uh, the Confederacy. And I, I, I believe that that did happen, the, that his regiment's uh, servants were spared from that. So William Trimble, very close to William Collins. They were um, business partners. They went to the same church. Uh, both of them were active in the local county fair in Hillsborough, Ohio, he could have been the source of the story that got back to William Collins, then got back to Noah Collins, that, that that's where the horse came from. Uh, again, I can't... Uh, oh, here's another little interesting thing. This is a pacing mare named Pocahontas. Now, she has more white, but you can actually see... She was a very famous racehorse of southern Ohio in the 1850s. And you can see the conformation characteristics. You know, the high withers, the, the sloping croup. Um, this is largely Narragansett pacer as well, I believe. Uh, and that was indeed in southern Ohio, near Hillsborough, where William Collins lived. So, so I, that's where the story goes. I think it's probably true that he did come from Summers, but the proof isn't there. There is speculation. All right, so this little horse that Jackson apparently called Fancy, um, but everybody else referred to as the Little Sorrel. The first place that uh, Thomas Jackson saw a real action was a skirmish at Hoax Run, also known as Falling Waters, also known as Haynesville, and I, I believe it was the 2nd of July, early July of 1861. Uh, Jackson did what he was supposed to do. It was a delaying action when a um, Union force came across the Potomac River. Uh, it was a sharp fight. I don't know if Little Sorrel was there. Jackson, neither Jackson nor the horse was famous enough at that point to uh, have anybody note whether he was there. There is one scene somebody wrote about, about Jackson sitting under tr a tree writing a dispatch uh, with a horse next to him, a horse next to him, with uh, um, enemy fire breaking branches off the tree and covering them both with branches, and neither of them was moving, which sounds like Little Sorrel later in the war. So I, I have a feeling he may have used him in this battle, but I don't know for sure. Now, we do know what horse he was on at the next event, which was a couple of weeks later at First Manassas. You can see on this, this old map, um, Jackson brought his troops in to the location on the railroad. I think the Manassas, yeah, Manassas Gap Railroad shows there. Uh, the battle took place. It was a tremendous victory for the Confederacy, so important that uh, in the 1940s, uh, a mounted picture, or mounted statue, rather, of Jackson and what was supposed to be Little Sorrel was placed at the site of uh, Jackson's, uh, where he got his name, Stonewall, because he, he and his Stonewall Brigade 
got his name there too, stood firm against uh, a union onslaught. And the uh, sculptor was given the direction to include Little Sorrel and uh, Jackson on aboard. Now, we do know who he was on at uh, First Manassas, and it wasn't Little Sorrel. It was on a borrowed horse. Now, I don't really know why. I think maybe that Little Sorrel just didn't get there in time. Uh, because of the rail transportation, but he wasn't there. But he's honored on, you know, on the Henry Hill site with this uh, magnificent statue. Now, Little Sorrel became famous and became written about during the period between, right after the Battle of First Manassas. There are descriptions of him, of Jackson going to headquarters, riding around, uh, checking on his troops aboard this nondescript, sorry, little chestnut horse. So we know that was Little Sorrel. Uh, in November, he moved up to uh, Winchester, Virginia, and um, Little Sorrel was with him. By then, it was very clear that was his primary horse. And a very important event happened to Little Sorrel in Winchester while waiting for further action. He was met, uh, he was uh, hooked up with a man named Jim Lewis. That is the black man to second from the left of this picture. This drawing is a is a imaginary scene that took place like a year later, but it's the only known or presumed rendition of Jim Lewis that exists. Lewis was a slave, although not Jackson's slave. He was, uh, he was rented. Um, he was actually older than this man is shown here because it looks like a boy, but he was, he was an adult. Um, he was the body servant or camp servant for Jackson for the, rest of his, for the rest of his life. And one of the jobs, in addition to sewing, in addition to cooking, in addition to packing up the camp gear, he had the care of Jackson's horses. So little, the Little Sorrel, now commonly called Little Sorrel, and the Big Sorrel, whose name, who never got another name, apparently, uh, were cared for by Jim Lewis, the black man, uh, who was not only devoted to Jackson, but really devoted to the horse. He did his best to protect him through, throughout the, uh, the, the remainder of their war. And uh, just after the first of the year began the Romney campaign, uh, a winter campaign to try to take a, a small Union outpost in Romney, West Virginia, uh, terribly difficult through ice and through snow and this is what they had to cross to get there. This, this is not that specific scene, but it's typical. And this was the spot where Jackson became, according to Mrs. Jackson later, uh, extremely fond of Little Sorrel because he never slipped. Other horses were slipping down and falling and having terrible trouble. Uh, Little Sorrel was sure-footed, never got tired. It didn't matter what he was fed. Obviously, feed was hard to come by on a campaign like that. Uh, so it was at this point, according to Mrs. Jackson, this is the winter of 1862, where Jackson became devoted, now Stonewall Jackson became devoted to Little Sorrel. The first battle of the Shenandoah Valley campaign uh, was the only loss, the only presumed loss for Jackson of the campaign. Some of them were, were close, but uh, this was Kernstown um, in March. Now, it's important to the history of the horse because Jackson attacked on bad um, intelligence about how many federal troops were still there, uh, and, it, and it was a disaster for them. They, they withdrew afterwards. And at that point, Jackson, I think, became determined that he would see for his, himself whenever possible. Um, and that became a challenge for Little Sorrel as well as they went up the valley meaning south, uh, up meaning the phrase is what's used in the Shenandoah Valley, meaning to a higher elevation. We who are used to looking at maps would generally consider that down the valley, but in fact they went up the valley to the south to look for, uh, well, the role really was to keep uh, the Union uh, troops occupied there so they wouldn't go join up uh, 
and attack Richmond. Okay, the next battle of the Shenandoah campaign was uh, McDowell, now in West Virginia. And you can see here, it's, it's pretty hilly. This is Sitlington's Hill, where just before the battle, Jackson insisted on riding up to the high place, the high spot himself, up on that hill, to take a look at, at the, the um, disposition of the Union troops. Uh, they were within artillery range, possibly even within long arm range, and it was very dangerous. Um, Jackson, of course, was a, a determined Presbyterian. He believed that his time was going to come when it would come, but he also exposed a horse who I don't think was a Presbyterian, but, uh, <laughs> but Little Sorrel and he survived to fight another day. The McDowell uh, battle was a success. Uh, this is an early map of uh, up and down the valley, and you can see the various sites. Then late in, in uh, the campaign, Jackson found himself in Port Republic. This is the George Kemper house. He was a doctor in town, uh, and he chose it as his headquarters, a rather odd choice of headquarters. He and his staff were there. The, his troops were, were not immediately accessible. The horses were turned out in the pastures around the house. And then... Um, Union troops came over the, uh, the one bridge into Port Republic. Uh, Jackson found himself trapped at the end, managed, you know, was about to try to get out and realized he needed his own horse, hopped aboard his own horse, had to get him from that pasture, and they dashed down the street of Port Republic, got over the bridge just, as a, just in time, and lived again to uh, fight another day but it was a close thing. After the, the success of the Valley Campaign, whose main goal, after all, was to keep the Union troops there occupied and make them uh, make Abraham Lincoln afraid that, that Jackson might come to Washington, which he was afraid of, it was off to the Chickahominy region east of Richmond for what became the Seven Days Battle. This is a peaceful-looking river right now, but it was a very difficult situation for man and horse. This is an early map. I mean, it's, there's so much happened during the Seven Days, you'll be hard-pressed to pick it up. Although you can see the swampy areas marked on the map, which made it unusually difficult for horses because there was no grazing. Uh, they get uh, insect-borne diseases, although not malaria, just like uh, humans do. And uh, the swampy land is very hard on those, their feet, but those tough little Narragansett pacer feet survived. And although he's often described here as being rather uh, grubby-looking, especially in, uh, in comparison to uh, Leon, Robert E. Leon Traveler, who this was their first major battle, uh, he survived, and he survived well. Um, one of the, uh, let me hear, I'll just show you exactly, this is what the swamp land looked like. That little horse was in and out of the swamp for a week and did survive well enough though, so that when the, um, when the battles were over, Jackson and his staff and troops headed north. And this is, uh, you know, a picture, one of the first picture, earliest picture I could find of a situation that was reported repeatedly when Jackson was aboard Little Sorrel. If you notice him in the middle, he's asleep. He trusted his horse to get them where he was going, and this shows staff members helping him out to make sure he doesn't tumble off the horse, but other people described situations where Little Sorrel would be there with nobody around him, Jackson snoozing, and the horse finding his way where he was supposed to go with no trouble at all, um, which I think is a pretty impressive thing. Um, Cedar Mountain was a, a relatively small battle that took place on the way north, uh, but again, 
top of that hill, that's, this is a modern picture that I took, I think, last year. Uh, interestingly, the land hasn't changed much around there. It's a little south of Culpeper, and kind of an interesting place to go if you haven't been. Um, Jackson and, and the horse and some staff members and some cavalry are at the top of that hill, uh, certainly within range of the Union um, batteries, which are to the left of the picture. So uh, you can imagine to the left, that's the Union batteries. Imagine Little Sorrel and Jackson on top of that hill, again, risking, uh, risking themselves tremendously. There's a good description by a cavalry officer of uh, Jackson found trouble down right about where I was taking the picture. Uh, and dashed down the hill, jumping some fences. An interesting challenge for a horse with that slopey croup and, and who's, who's a pacer, and down the road, and they uh, saved the day or whatever. It was a good victory for the Confederacy. And it was, uh, the, the other thing important about Cedar Mountain is the first significant photograph of dead, I presume, artillery horses uh, after a battle. And, you know, this really shows what a hard war it was on horses. The other interesting thing about uh, about Jackson and Cedar Mountain was that it also was the first instance of people stealing the horse's hair. The, the uh, South and, and even some into the North museums are uh, often have a, a, a hair or more hairs or a chunk of hairs of little sorrel's tail and mane. Um, for some reason, I mean, they, they would do that with, with general's horses in general, but apparently little sorrel was particularly um, Popular, and you'll you'll see in their catalogs, rusty tail hairs from Stonewall Jackson's horse, or something like that, of the the museum catalogs. Uh, there's a story of a uh, Union uh, sergeant who had been captured. Jackson wanted to interview him about some intelligence matter, and and caught him caressing Little Sorrel's rump, and discovering he was taking out hairs with it. And he claimed that the hairs were worth a dollar each in New York, which seems like a lot of money for a rusty tail hair. But at any rate, the story's repeated again and again at other points during the war that, that uh, they would have plucked him clean if they had had a chance. The horse was so popular and so famous. It was on to what became the Battle of Second Manassas. Now, this, uh, this particular incident I'll tell you about took place on uh, August 28th of 1862. It's considered the first, either the first day of the Battle of Second Manassas or a battle that took place before the two days of Second Manassas. There are, there's discussion about that. Uh, Jackson was up at the, well, about two-thirds of the way up on a hillside. Um, there were, was a Union division marching west to east, which would be left to right in front of him. Here's the hill where Jackson was. It's not a high hill, but it, it is exposed. When Jackson w rode out from the left to, to about this spot to take a look at what was marching below him, it was a Union division, uh, his, his own staff were concerned about him exposing himself, but of course he did it anyway. Uh, he was also spotted there by this man, Abner Doubleday, who did not invent baseball, but he did see Stonewall Jackson on a hillside within easy range of, uh, of muskets, rifles, and artillery. Uh, he claims. Uh, you know, there, there is a little bit of doubt about it. He claims that some officers were looking up at this kind of scruffy-looking man and a scruffy-looking horse that they figured was a local farmer. Doubleday claims that, that he, um, he, he knew it was somebody important. He knew it was an officer. That they were not shot. They lived to have a great success at Second Manassas the day after. There was a battle that day, uh, which was sort of a draw. All right, so after Second Manassas, Lee gets the um, gets the courage, well, he always had the courage, gets the idea that this would be a good uh, point to invade the North. He'd been thinking about it. Jackson was certainly thinking about it. 
here they're crossing the Potomac River, but not with little, Jackson is not aboard Little Sorrel here. And this one of the mysteries of, of, uh, of his life is why Little Sorrel was not there. Henry Kidd Douglas, the aide who wrote a great book on it, said Little Sorrel was stolen or missing. I don't think that that was true. I think he may have actually been wounded because I did find a story of, of one of uh, Jackson's bodyguards slash couriers holding Little Sorrel when the, the courier was hit by a, an artillery shell and, and later died, although not that day. It's possible that the horse was slightly wounded. At any rate, he was out of action for a while. He was back in action for the Battle of Harper's Ferry, which took place on September 15th, shortly before Antietam, because he is described by many people being there, again, as a scruffy-looking little horse, but he was there. And then we go to Antietam, where Jackson and Little Sorrel, who we know was there, was up. They were up in the, the um, northern part of this map, uh, which would have been the left, the left wing of the uh, Confederate Army at this point. Now, the day before the battle, um, Joseph Hooker's troops crossed the Antietam Creek with, and the Confederates knew they were there. Jackson was, believe it or not, up on the hill watching it happen and stayed there all night, uh, exposing himself and his horse again, and they did survive to fight the Battle of Antietam. It was not a success. Lee had to turn around and, and go back to Virginia, and they crossed here at Blackford's Fords where um, Little Sorrel and Jackson stood in the middle of the water as the, the their entire uh, corps crossed to safety on the Virginia, West Virginia side. And this is where they spent the next few months, this part of Berkeley County, which is now in West Virginia. You can see down at the bottom, Bunker Hill, that was the primary spot of where they stayed. This was a good time for Little Sorrel. There was lots of grazing, a lot of grain, not much work. He became plump and happy, which was a good thing because they were off to fight a very cold battle, uh, and that was the Battle of Fredericksburg. And that was uh, in early December of 1862. Strangely enough, Jackson and uh, the Little Sorrel were up on the hill there. You know, high ground is good, but also very dangerous as the Union troops were crossing on, um, on pontoon bridges. Uh, Prospect Hill, you see it was named Dead Horse Hill for a very good reason. It was very, very hard on the horses that were there primarily artillery horses, but uh, others as well. This is fighting in the Battle of Fredericksburg. And uh, after a pleasant winter quarters, not much food but pleasant, it was on to Chancellorsville, where Jackson and Little Sorrel made their famous uh, flank movement around to the south. You can actually, this map actually, you can see um, where they went. And up to, uh, well, it met up with uh, Jackson and uh, Lee met up, traveler on the left, Little Sorrel on the right, and idealized Little Sorrel, as you can tell, this is a very handsome uh, horse. And they found themselves here after a successful battle. Uh, they found themselves here, Jackson, aboard Little Sorrel as usual. This is not exactly the plank road and mountain road. Mountain road is a little, you know, down that little path to the left, it's down there. There's debate on whether the, the significant uh, incident at Chancellorville happened on the plank road and the mountain road. I don't think it really matters. But what did happen was, as we all know, Jackson was shot by North Carolina troops who thought, apparently thought it was uh, Union cavalry coming. Little Sorrel bolted towards, towards the Union troops, was brought back by Jackson in, in his hand that was hurt the least bad. And uh, you know Jackson was taken off the horse. Uh, and most of even the very best of the um, Jackson biographers believe that Little Sorrel was then, then ran into the Union lines and was captured by Union forces. He was not. I think there is no evidence whatsoever that he was ever out of uh, Confederate hands. He was captured, he was taken underhand by Confederates. 
there's some evidence that he was used for a day or two before they realized that this was Stonewall Jackson's horse and then was, was treated better. I also think there is some fairly good evidence that he was, he was wounded himself. Because this man, whose narrative is sometimes ignored because he did embroider the truth a little bit, says he came across little Sorrel standing with his neck down, with bleeding from his neck. Um, you know, parts of his narrative are very accurate. Others are not. Um, I think it's, it's, I'll show you why later, that it's very possible. Uh, this, this is an imaginary courier in Ives. He was not in a field tent. He was uh, in, in a house on a plantation when he died. And in spite of this lovely little picture on the left, Little Sorrel was not there when he died. He was in the, the custody of uh, Deb Stewart's um, soldiers at the time that he died. Now, Anna Jackson uh, got control, of course, of uh, Stonewall Jackson's estate and took the horse. She, she was given the horse, of course. Took him home to her home in North Carolina, Cottage Home, which no longer stands. It's near Charlotte, and where he, he lived, lived and lived and lived. Paul Maringer is an interesting figure in her, in, in the later story of, uh, of Little Sorrel. Uh, he was the nephew of uh, Mrs. Jackson. And he has in his, he was a distinguished, uh, very distinguished doctor in Virginia later in the century. He tells the story of how he was a young boy and was sent out to recover Little Sorrel and the rest of the horses from Cottage Home that were taken by uh, cavalry troops connected to Sherman's march. Um, some people discount his story. I, I actually believe it's true. Interestingly enough, there were some troops from Hillsborough, Ohio, among the contingent that took Little Sorrel. So it is possible that that's how the story got back to Hillsborough and then, then up to Summers. This is Little Sorrel at about age 30. Now you can see on his neck there are some scars. It's possible they're just martingale or saddle galls. You know, a horse loses some hair from, from a tightly fit martingale, and that is way too tight. Or could they be wounds from Chancellorsville? Don't know. Uh, Mrs. Jackson tried to raise money off of him. They had cards. This is, I, you know, I have the front of the card too, but the, the image is too faint. You can't see it. This is the back of the card. She would sell them for a couple of dollars. Um, this, you know, in 1884, she felt she could no longer keep him. She donated him to VMI, um, where he was treated extremely well. At this point, he was 34 years old. That is really old for a horse. They sent him in early 1855 to uh, a cotton exposition in New Orleans, of all places, and this is how they advertised him. Uh, he was very popular there. He was very popular on his train trip there and back. This was a really elderly horse. I mean, the idea of uh, sending him on such a trip is interesting. I put this in from an Atlanta newspaper about him supposedly getting stuck in the mud on the bank of the Chattahoochee on his way back. I, you know, that seems improbable too, but it's possible. Uh, he went next door. You know, he, he didn't go home to VMI. He went to the soldier's home where he was lovingly cared for uh, by the old soldiers, the old Confederates. And then in March of 1856, I mean 1886, excuse me, he died. Uh, Frederick Webster, uh, the most famous taxidermist in the country, had been hired to, to do the taxidermy on him when he died. And this is what he came up with. This is the uh, Webster Mount of Little Sorrel at the VMI Museum. Um, you, so you can see him today. He's also, his bones were buried in 1997, so part of the horse is in the museum, part is out front. Um, he had a funeral with hundreds of people that showed up in, in 1997. And so we get into the statues. This, this, is, this is actually the Chancellorsville statue, but this is the copy 
uh, that's in uh, Harrison County in, in Clarksburg, West Virginia, where Jackson was born. It's a wonderful equestrian statue, probably the best in terms of the seat and the, the size and shape of the horse of any of them, although as you notice, the gate is wrong. This is a trotter. And you know, I'm gonna end with this one. This is out front here. There's a couple of other copies. This is in honor of the horses and mules, the equines who did not survive the Civil War. Um, you know, the estimate is varied between a million and three million. I think current historians believe it's about two million horses and mules died in that war. It was, I mean, it was hell on soldiers. It was a double hell on horses because they starved to death, which in general, you know, soldiers don't. They died of every disease you can imagine. Uh, wounds, you know, there's, there were no, there were no amputee horses surviving the war. If they were injured in the leg, they were dead. So, uh, so I'm going to end with that. A look at the horses we should honor. The two million that uh, survived. Little Sorrel lived to 36. These guys didn't get a chance. So, thank you very much. I'll leave this one on the screen. It's a little better to look at. Um, now, if there are any questions, I'd love to answer them. You need to watch, uh, wait for a microphone. So if anybody has a question, just wave your hand, and uh, we'll get a microphone to you. OK. OK. I was raised with pacers. Oh, so this makes a lot of sense as to the confirmation of the horse and the uh, actual riding, because we did ride them as well as drive them. So it makes a great deal of sense to me. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that there have been pacers. Actually, there's been recent research that's isolated the gene, and it's a genetic mutation that causes some horses to pace. But you look on the, uh, the cave paintings in France, and there are pacing horses on there. Uh, the earliest woodcut of, uh, of Chaucer's uh, you know, Canterbury Tales shows the wife of Bath on a pacing horse. It was a perfectly good gait to ride at, but for some reason it sort of lost its reputation in the 19th century. But there are plenty of them still around. I was wondering if the soldier's home that was mentioned was the one right here. It absolutely is. That's, that's where he went in, uh, in 1850, or, yeah, 1885, you can see him, 50, 1885. And he lived for a year well cared for. They, the soldiers there loved him, were devoted to him. They actually probably kept him alive a little bit longer than they should have. The, the story of his demise is that at one point he couldn't stand anymore, and he was sort of jacked up with a with a... I don't know, some kind of a truss that kept him upright, and they finally fell out of it and was, you know, the, whether he was put down or whether he just died, I don't honestly know, but they loved him. They were, he was a connection to Jackson and, and other, other lost uh, comrades. Thank you. I grew up with Morgans, Did you? and I swear there's Morgan blood in that horse somewhere. Well, you know, the, you know, the pacers, but the, I mean, uh, you look at that horse and you go, Morgan. And the, um, the personality of a Morgan, that stolid, right. hardworking, yeah. just it works. You know what I think is more likely, actually, that there's Narragansett pacer blood in a Morgan, is, you know, if you actually look, and, and uh, because some devoted Morgan person, George Lindsay, wrote uh, you know, everything that was known about the establishment of the Morgan in like 1857, I think it was, 1850s anyway. 
And he, he looked at the sons of Justin Morgan, the progenitor of the breed, and many of them were bred to Narragansett Pacers mares. That was a very popular breeding. Uh, generally, their offspring trotted rather than paced, because Justin Morgan, as they say, stamped his offspring, which means that they look like him. Um, so it's one of the reasons the Narragansetts died out, why they disappeared. They were really useful in other breeds. and. You know, so they no longer pace. There are some ga so-called gated Morgans that do a gate a little bit like a pace, but it's not really a pace. So, yeah, of course there's some connection. And by 1850, there wouldn't have been a full-bred uh, Narragansett pacer anyway. But I do think he was primarily a Narragansett pacer from his conformation, his color, and his, you know, his size, and his location. Hi, um, enjoyed the talk. I read that Little Sorrel never panicked in battle. He always kept his cool and never panicked. You know, I think that's true, except for when Jackson was hit. Now, it could be explained by, um, you know, when a horse that's very attached to his rider, uh, has something happened to the rider, that can cause a panic. I think that's why I think one of the reasons I think he may have been hit too, perhaps not too severely because he obviously survived. He was not present in the uh, funeral procession for, for Jackson, which took place, I believe, on May 12th, a couple of days after his death, very close to here. Uh, was it, you know, they, the riderless horse was, was Jackson's other horse, Superior, who was a much handsomer horse, which Jackson did not ride in battle, at least not that, that we know of. Uh, or maybe Little Sorrow was recuperating. I, you know, I don't know. He was not at the funeral. Should have been, of course. Um, but I think because of his bolting actually twice during the, the shooting incident, I believe he was actually hit. But you're right. There's one other instance of a, of a cannon shot landing close to him where he jerked away a little bit. But that was, that was it. He did not. He was calm. Um, he wasn't stupid, you know. So it was... It's just how he was, sort of like Jackson himself. He was a genius at what he did, an unexpected genius at what he did. I notice that you don't have an image of the uh, equestrian statue of Jackson that's just a few hundred feet from here. I'm wondering, is that an accurate uh, representation? Is that little sorrel that he's riding in, is that an accurate representation? And also, your thoughts about the current uh, statue controversy. Well, yeah. <laughs> Gee, I think, you know. Um, it's not Little Sorrel, it's superior. And the sculptor deliberately made it superior, I think, because they wanted a handsomer horse. Um, as for Jackson, no, that's the traditional military seat. He, he was probably capable of riding that way. And if he was posing, if he ever posed on horseback, which as far as we know, he never did, he might have you know, sat up and lowered his stirrups, I don't know. Um, so it's not accurate in that it's the, not the horse, and it probably is not accurate in terms of how Jackson looked in the saddle. However, it's a magnificent statue. As to the statue controversy, I really do have mixed feelings. I can certainly understand how it could be offensive to some people to honor men who fought for a system that would perpetuate slavery. On the other hand, I think these statues are history in themselves, certainly here. I mean, it's part of the fabric of Richmond. Um, you know, and I wish I knew what the compromise would be. I, I, you know, maybe alternative signage might work, additional statues, you know, adding Arthur Ashe, I do think was a good thing. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a dilemma. I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I personally am very sad to see the equestrian ones go. 
but it's it's a it's difficult. Could you tell me what happened to the groom afterward? The care. You know, he he given? went off with Sandy Pendleton, who was uh, one of Jackson's favorite aides, and. Uh, was his camp servant until Pendleton was killed about a, a little over a year later. Went back to Lexington, Virginia, which is where he was from, where his his real owner was from, and he apparently died shortly after that. We do know where he was buried, but you know there's very very little known about him, and he was extremely important in this horse's life. I wish I wish we knew more, but he did not long survive the war, um, so he had a, he had a terrible war as well. Did the back black man that care of Sorrel in the field have any other involvement after the war? Well, that, that was who we were talking yeah. about there. He went off. Sandy Pendleton was one of Jackson's favorite aides, um, and so he, he, he joined Pendleton. I think they were close even before, uh, but Pendleton was killed as well, uh, you know, in, in, I believe, 1864, and then Lewis went back to Lexington, and he, he died there. His, the cemetery where he's believed to be buried does still exist, and there's efforts to, you know, spruce it up and you know, uh, give some attention to it. So hopefully they will, they will do that for him. Is there any uh, documentation as to uh, Little Sorrel ever siring or anything? No, I, I didn't <laughs> mention it. I, impossible, he was a gelding. Oh. <laughs> that took care of that. That absolutely <laughs> took care of that. <laughs> Anything more? We have time for one more. I don't have a question. I've got a story. Okay. Uh, Sounds good. In 1966, I was a rat at VMI, and they would assign you a study place outside of barracks so you could study, and mine was in the third sub-basement of the uh, Preston Library. And when I took my books down to it, I discovered that little Sorrel with a saddle on him was sitting next to my desk. <laughs> And when you're studying, you know, you lean back in your chair and you want to put your feet up, and I would hook my feet uh -oh. on the stirrups. And so I guess little Sorrel helped me pass rat chemistry. You notice that, you notice, they may have known that you were doing that, because you notice the saddle is off him in this latest refurbishing of the mount. <laughs> Let's all thank Sharon. Thank you very much.